Oh, hello, and welcome to the Community Experience Podcast. We are so glad you're here. If you're one of our regulars, you're probably wondering why we haven't published in a while. We actually chose to sunset the show in early 2023, but the feed will stay active because so many of the episodes are timeless. If you want to learn more and search our back catalog, you can visit smartpassiveincome.com slash cxpodcast, all one word. Hey everyone, Jillian here. Just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language and may not be appropriate for younger audiences. How do you build a community like that around a set of secular values? How do you tell a narrative that convinces people that it's worth sacrificing for the people that they love and it kind of makes sense of and codifies things like forgiveness and compassion and community service? Okay, so I don't know if you've ever been to a youth group, but there is a lot that we can learn from religion and from ministers, from folks who have dealt with youth, and from folks who have both been inside of religious ministry and outside of it. And that is who we're talking to today, Bart Campolo, son of famous Baptist evangelist Tony Campolo, who is now a secular humanist, and he is the host of the podcast Humanize Me, which is now over 700 episodes as of this recording, looking at all kinds of different angles on building great relationships, cultivating wonder, making things better for other people. This is a super just interesting episode. Get ready to listen and think, I would say, headphones episode. Bart is like me and is a sailor, he swears, so... Put on your headphones. You got kids in the room (laughs) and then get ready to hear some things that might challenge your beliefs. And that's okay. We're not here to tell you what to do, but it's all good things to ponder. This is the Community Experience Podcast with Bart Campolo, host of Humanize Me Podcast. Okay. Welcome, everyone. We've got Bart Campolo here. Bart, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. Glad to be with you guys. So great to have you. I mean that in an inclusive way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like Gender nonspecific guys. Uh, Y'all. Y'all. Use you alls. Yins. Bart, before we started recording, Bart's been running a podcast, the Humanize Me podcast, which has over 600 episodes from what I can tell. He kind of started interviewing us and it it was really, it was quite nice, I have to say. (laughs) He's a natural. Kind of almost forgot that we were here to interview you. Uh, But now it's our turn. So Bart, just give us a little bit about your story of how you ended up kind of like what your podcast is about and why you made that podcast and how your life journey led you to that. Maybe we'll start there. All right. Yeah. I I mean, I'll try to keep it brief. Keep it under two hours if you can. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, because my life is is a fascinating journey that I think anyone would want to spend hours and hours exploring. But in reality, it's not. But the thing that is interesting vis-a-vis the Community Experience podcast is that I grew up outside of Philadelphia in the family of a Baptist evangelist. My dad was a college professor But his sort of side hustle and his main thing that ended up blowing up for him was he was this fabulous preacher. If you talk to any evangelical Christian in America over the age of 30, 
they will know who Tony Campolo is. I mean, he's a big, hairy deal in that world. So I grew up kind of in an evangelist family, in a, in a very kind of Christian world. And, and I think that when you are the son of a Baptist evangelist, like people sort of assume that you sprang from the womb praising Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, is that I didn't actually become a Christian until I was 15 years old. And it wasn't because I was like rebellious or hateful or my father was a phony or anything like that. It was just, I, I just didn't believe in God. The narrative never really made sense to me as a kid. I knew my dad really believed in it and there were a lot of nice people and I didn't make a lot of waves about it. But when I was in high school, I was a soccer player and a kid on my soccer team brought me along to his youth group. And there's one of these 300 person mega church youth groups with like rock and roll bands and laser light shows. And it was like the greatest community I had ever seen. Like I walked in there, it was like 300 of the nicest kids that you would ever want to meet. They were from all different kind of like stereotypical like cliques and things like that. But like in this context, everybody was warm to each other and friendly and people were hugging. And I was a nice kid. And I walked into this group and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a club for nice kids. Like I want in. And I quickly realized like, you know, this is a Christian deal. And because of the family I grew up in, I knew the language. And so I immediately started faking that I was also a Christian so that I could be part of this community. It was that attractive. And, and part of it was that they were nice, but part of it also was that they were, they had a mission, you know, like they were like trying to reach out to other kids who were struggling in life or who were sad or who were lonely. And they were like, come into our group and we'll enfold you with love and give you a, you know, exciting sense of identity and connection. I, I was just like, this is what I want to do. And they actually approached me and said, like, you clearly have some kind of leadership kind of gifts. Like we could really use you to make a difference in the lives of other people. And so like, you're a nice kid. And they're like, we could use you and this would be great. So community is what drew me in. And like, so I, I stayed in that group for a while, like not believing in God, just because I wanted to be part of it. That's how powerful that community was. Finally, you know, we're up on a retreat one weekend. And I don't know if you've ever been on one of those like youth retreats, but like, you know, we're all out there and we're sugared up and we haven't slept in two nights and we're standing around the fire and everybody's singing and holding candles and singing, our God is awesome. And, and I felt something, it became real to me. I sensed God. And it's funny because like I'm as agnostic about that stuff now as the day is long, but that experience was very real. Probably now I would call it like collective effervescence. It was a psychological phenomenon of, of being in a large group of people who are unified in a way, but like I, it was real to me. And all of a sudden I was like, this is real. God is real. I'm in. And I mean, I think if I would have been a Muslim kid on a Muslim retreat, I would have been like, Allah, you know, and if I, if I would have been at an Amway convention, I would have been like, sell more soap. You know, like, like <laughs> I, I, I think whatever group you're a part of, whatever community that you're a part of, when you have that transcendent moment, it confirms that narrative. And I was a Christian kid on a Christian retreat and I was in. That was the beginning of, for the next 30 years, I was all for Jesus. You know, and what's interesting is, I'll tell you one last thing, Tony. Yeah, go for it. That it was really hard for me to buy all the supernatural stuff, like, Flying Jesus and people rising from the dead and Red Seas oh, parting. That's my and all this favorite stuff. part. That's yeah, okay. no, they're they're fun stories. I, I'm like, here for that. <laughs> yeah, no, they're fun stories. Like, and if I, I also like the Marvel comic universe, but like they're hard to actually believe. But the community that I was in was so powerful and so wonderful and provided so much in terms of identity and purpose and camaraderie 
for me, believing in God in heaven wasn't the motivation to be a Christian. It was the price of admission. Like I wanted to be a Christian because I wanted to be part of that community. Yeah. And if, and if believing was what it took to be a part of it, like my mind found a way to embrace those ideas because it was so important to me to be in. I'm trying to like hold back a little just from my own personal experiences, but uh, there's something interesting and I've been exploring this, just thinking about it a lot lately, actually. And, and it's just that I do think, I think churches and youth groups in particular have such a power to draw people in who aren't feeling a sense of belonging almost from a family structure. And I'm not putting that on you, Bart. It sounds like, you know, you obviously had, well, I won't make assumptions about your family structure, but uh, I know, I know myself and other people who were otherwise unaffiliated with religion at home getting drawn into that because there was just this acceptance and belonging that we weren't getting otherwise in like the home sense. Kids are so vulnerable at that age. Kids are so, and, and even the kids that have the wonderful families mm -hmm. are trying to figure out, like they're differentiating from their families. So there's this sense of like, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? And yeah, youth group provides this, you know, so there's a marching band, by the way, or a cross country team. There are these places where people find a sense of like, oh, I fit here and there's a role for me here. And it's very powerful. You know, the kids like me who did come from really solid families and people, you know, people were supportive of me. You know, I brought some skills and some strengths to the table. And the youth group looked at me and said, oh, we can use all that. That's great. You, you feel comfortable talking to people? Great. We can use that. Like, it was like they, they looked at me and said, hey, you can use who you are to make a huge difference in the world. And that's the age at which people are like, I want to go off to war. Or I, I want to join the French Foreign Legion. Like people are looking for a cause. And so it's not just that they made me feel like they cared about me, that they looked at me and said, hey, you could be very significant here. Did you have that experience, Jillian? I mean, did you ever get swept up in a youth group? I got swept up in a youth group. I saw the, and I, and I don't want anyone to take this personally, that, you know, had a different experience. But for me, in, the, in this particular church that was evangelical, I saw the cracks in the armor pretty quickly and like a lot of hypocrisy, but it took a couple of years. And, you know, my parents were kind of like, you're, you're joining a youth group. Neat. Um, but at the same time, she's fine. Like nothing bad, you know, that's a very safe environment. If that's what you want to do with your time, go for it. And they weren't a part of any of it. And it was kind of an escape. And I made some really, I mean, my best friend in the world, that's how I met her. And we're still very close. You know, we still, we talk about this stuff still, um, and like traumas and whatnot, but yeah, I started, you know, and it was, it was over the course of a, a few years really was questioning how it all worked. It didn't seem fair. It was very patriarchal. There was a lot of singing on Sunday to save your soul after Saturday's gone type of behavior. And I saw it for what it was and I walked away and I could because it wasn't a huge part of my life outside of just my own choice to go do it. So, you know, by the time I was in high school, I was done. And I mean, I think a lot of people have that experience. It meets a short-term need, but if you're in a woman in the evangelical world, like it's a much higher price, but you know, it's hard on all, you know, it's just a lot of weirdness. You know, I mean, I spend a lot of my time now counseling and coaching people that are trying to make sense of life on the other side of faith. And 
you know, some of them are, you know, they, they really damaged in terms of like the messages that they were sent about sexuality, the repression that they encountered that, that haunts them in their marriages, even to this day, the sense of unworthiness, you know, cause the whole gospel is like, you deserve to burn in hell, but we can <laughs> yeah. save you. This is your only chance. They say, oh, grace, God loves you no matter what. And that's a beautiful message. But like the flip side of grace is God has to love you so much because you're so unlovable. It's a miracle. Only God can save you. A lot of people really internalize that sense of shame and that sense of unworthiness. And so there's a lot of stuff that I sold that, that package for many years as a, as a missionary and as a, as a preacher myself. And you know, I have a lot of guilt about, a lot of regret about turning kids on to a way of thinking that had some, a real dark side to it. But there was also some beautiful stuff that happened in those contexts. So, you know, but I, but, but yeah, a lot of people that they come and they go, for me, I got swept up in it. And then very early in my Christian journey, at the point at which I would have done anything for Jesus, somebody said, Hey, will you help us run this summer camp in ghetto Camden, New Jersey? Which if, if you're from the East Coast, you would know it's like one of the toughest places in the world. And I didn't know any better. I was like, for Jesus, I'll do anything. So I went, you know, me and five other kids running a summer camp. And I walked into this ghetto and it was just like, I had never seen anything like the urban poverty that I saw there and the chaos and the stuff. And I just, you know, you spend the summer working with kids in that setting, you just fall in love with them. And by the end of that summer, it's like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to serve poor people for Jesus. And, and that was basically what I did for the next 30 years. So I think that depending on what happens to you in those first few years, it becomes permanent or it doesn't become permanent. And, and for me, I got, you know, and again, like I did have family people that were like, this is great. He's following Jesus, you know? So um, everybody's thrilled. And so, yeah, so, so I was off to the races there. And I spent the next 30 years, you know, basically having this really weird experience whereby, and this is where I'll keep it really short, whereby over the course of those 30 years, my commitment to loving poor people and to building community in which people could find identity and find connection and to, you know, pursuing values of loving kindness and building loving relationships, it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And my ability to believe in the supernatural narrative of a God that had any concern for anything or that was in any way, like just died the death of a thousand cuts, the thousand unanswered prayers. I mean, if you're in the ghetto, you're praying for really basic stuff that doesn't happen. <laughs> you're praying that some little nine-year-old girl will stop getting raped by her uncle and she doesn't. You know, and, 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 you know, that some, that some kid will not get shot and, and, and the kid that gets shot that he won't die in the hospital and he does. And so, you know, in the end, it, it became harder and harder over the years for me to reconcile like where I was living and the way I was living and this belief system. And so in the end, you know, 25 years of marriage, two kids, uh, like a whole lifetime later, you know, I'm finally getting a bike crash and, uh, almost die and have like traumatic brain injury. I'm not myself for about a month. And when I finally recover, I look at my wife and I go like, I think, I think my, my identity is in my brain. Cause like you smash it against a tree at 40 miles an hour and I change. And I said, and I think I'm going to die cause I almost died. And I think that when I die and my brain breaks down, I don't think I'll be here anymore. Like, I think this is it. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, I've been thinking that for a long time now. She's like, I think you better stop being a professional Christian because there's nothing left. 
Like I had been every kind of heretic. I had been more and more liberal, more and more open. I was a universalist. I was like, I was fine with gay people. I had worked, I'd done every kind of spiritual gymnastics I could do to stay in the game. But in the end, she was like, we're, we're done here. And, and then that, that was, that, that's sort of like the second part of my life started where I was like, what do you do when you're a minister who doesn't believe in God anymore? You know, like, like, like what, what do you do on the other side of faith? You know, that was in like 2011. And so it's been like about 11 years that I've been trying to figure out because the truth of the matter is when, when I left the faith, like I still believe in loving relationships. I still believe in community building. I still want to help poor people. And so the question is like, okay, so now, you know, how do you support that old value system on a different foundation? And so that, that's kind of, that's kind of the work I've done now. And I, you know, I've been a lot of things. I've, I've consulted with people cause I didn't, couldn't get a real job. And I spent three years in, in Southern California as the humanist chaplain at the university of Southern California, which was like the ultimate community building gig, like building like a campus community of young people who don't believe in God, but believe in love and want to figure out how do you pursue a loving, a loving lifestyle on the basis of science and reason. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's a truly wonderful experience, you know, stuff that I did. And, and eventually they're like, my wife couldn't stand living in LA. And so she wanted to move back to where we had lived before in Cincinnati. And so I, we moved back to Cincinnati about four or five years ago. And I've been, you know, trying to figure out like, well, what does it, what does it mean to be a community builder in a local, in a local neighborhood? And what does it mean to, you know, what, what do you do? So it's like, you know, if, if you're having me on the podcast to talk about like my crazy journey and what I figured out, that's great. If, you, if you're like, what are the answers, Bart? How does, how does that work? How do you make a meaningful life? Like, I, I, I don't know. I can't tell you. Well, we definitely want some answers, but we will get to those. I have no answers. <laughs> I was hoping you'd just like fix my life for me. Is that not what we're doing? <laughs> just kidding. What I'm seeing, Bart, which is so powerful, is that your journey, while very different from the journeys of many, still kind of mirrors in a macro sense the experience a lot of people have had, which is they grow up with some impression of a, a way of the world, some relationship to religion, uh, organized religion, that relationship changed over time. And then they found themselves not affiliated in the same way. We see religious affiliation has gone down substantially. And at the same time, loneliness has gone up. And we're seeing that people are maybe, you know, trying to find that transcendent moment and I think, you know, when you said like, when you have that moment, it confirms the narrative. In my mind, that really clicks a lot together for me because we've seen studies about what's going on with loneliness, what's going on with people's sense of belonging and meaning and where does religion fit into it. And one of the topics that came up was, well, are people creating new religious relationships with non-religions? Is it like wherever you get that transcendent moment is now your, your religion? And, and like for some people that's CrossFit or SoulCycle or like an online group, maybe a conspiracy group even, you know? And so what I'm curious about from the answers perspective is, you know, you're clearly very passionate about this from your own perspective, but then also from wanting to support others. So what are you doing? How are you supporting other people in this journey, you know, going forward? What are you doing just day to day? As, I'm, as I was listening to you talk, I mean, it isn't just that like people found this sense of connection community 
in religion, in religious communities, and now those are fading or their ability to believe in those narratives is fading. And that's where the problem comes from. Like it's, it's way deeper than that. You guys, I know that your, your podcast network involves some business podcasts. Ask anybody about the workplace. And what they'll tell you is, is that, you know, over the last 50 years, the loyalty of companies to their employees and of employees to their companies has eroded to the place where nobody expects to work at a company for the higher up in the tech world you get. Like, it's, yeah, I work for them for six weeks, also six months. Like, people don't expect loyalty from the company, and the company doesn't expect loyalty from the people. And then you get down to organized labor. And it used to be that a person would go to work in a factory, and they could make a career there. They could they could work the way up. But now people like, um, oh, who's the guy? Jeff, is, is it Bezos, the Amazon guy? I mean, I know Bezos is the Amazon guy, but I'm trying to think. Of, yeah, he's the one who basically is sort of like, hey, you know what? If we just turn over our employees, we'll pay people like shit and we'll treat them like shit and they'll work here for like 16 months. And that's good because that's first 16 months of somebody working for you is when you get the most work out of them. So we'll just extract their best labor and then we'll discard them and bring in somebody else. Oh, like he's taken it, he's turned it into a science of disloyalty. So there's this macro trend of like the the erosion of loyalty and that, but but also like that companies used like it used to be that like if you worked for Ford Motor Company. You drove a Ford. You wore a Ford hat. That was a, that was your identity and that was your sense of belonging. And those were the people, hey, I worked in that factory with Charlie for 30 years, you know, like our we raised our kids together. And like they were going to live in that community. And and that was like the village. And so what happens in this in this scenario is not only do you have people losing the one kind of community, they're losing the other kind of community, but the other thing is people have become much more mobile. So it used to be that people would like live in the same town that they grew up in. And they would hang out with all the people they went to high school with. So then they would get married. And if if I married Jillian, if you and I had gotten married in our small town where we went to high school, your family's around, my family's around, your high school friends are there, my high school friends are there. So you and I, like we get married, we raised some kids together and we spent some time together. But like, you still got all your friends. You still, like, I don't have to be your everything. I don't have to be your workout partner. I don't have to be your business partner. I don't have to be everything. Like, I'm just your dude, right? You have friends, you have family. But now you and me get married and we move to San Francisco for some job. And like, all of a sudden we're in a new city. We don't know anybody. And so like, you have to be everything to me. So like, you need to, you need to like the same books I like. You need to want to watch the football game with me, or I need to be able to go on a bike ride with you. Like, and so it puts a lot of pressure on people's marriages because the marriage is supposed to be the whole village for people. And that's a whole difficulty all by itself. And we haven't even started on social media and people on internets and, and, and phones and things like that and the alienating pressures of the media. So, so Tony, it's like, it's like way deeper than like, I, I can't go to church anymore. Totally. So I'm a, a thousand percent with you on all this. And you've explored a lot of things from a lot of different angles. You know, I'm just going through like the episodes in your podcast, all of that. If you could distill for me your most optimistic take on what could I do as a person, as a community leader, or even just as an individual? Like where, where do you see us being able to take action that will just start to nudge culture in a better direction? That's a great question. Um, and first of all, I'm, I'm a hopeful man, but I'm not optimistic. You know, I'm hopeful in the way that Rebecca Solnit talks about hope. 
You know, it's just the sense of like, A, I don't know what's going to happen. And B, I think there's a chance that something I might do might make some kind of a difference. So I'm going to do my best. But like optimism is like, I think everything's going to turn out okay. I don't think there's any reason to think everything's going to turn out okay. Or if it does turn out okay, it's going to turn out okay on the other side of a great social and economic collapse. I don't think we're headed in a good direction and I don't think there's any way to put on the brakes. So like, I think like we're heading into a really bad time. So like think of the human race as like, we're all passengers on the Titanic. The ship hasn't gone down yet. Maybe we haven't even hit the iceberg yet, but like there's an iceberg out there and we're going down. So Tony, if you're on the Titanic and you know it's going to sink before anybody else does, what do you do? And my answer is you build a lifeboat. So what I would say is the most optimistic or the most hopeful thing you can do is can you learn the skills and figure out like, how do I take 20 or 30 people and create an, a context in which they can develop deep relationships with each other, where they can learn how to resolve conflict because any community, there's going to be conflict. And, and so the answer isn't to find people that agree with you all the time. The answer is to find people with whom you can work out disagreements in a, in a healthy and in a sane way and reconcile the relationship. Can you learn how to raise children in the midst of difficulty that are hopeful and that have really cool values and that care for each other? Can you learn how to grow some food or how to cook and eat food in a way that is sustainable or in a way that is at least healthy for, for the 30 of you? Can you work all that stuff out? Because ultimately, if there is a collapse, It'll be units like that, people like strong families and extended families and friendship networks that work like families. That'll be like when there are no governments, when there are no, when, when things, and, and if there is no collapse and everything like, and Biden fixes it and we're all in great shape and the world gets saved and Ukraine isn't invaded and there's no, and global warning, you know, we figure it out with carbon sequester and everything's great. Those 30 people, they'll still be the most mentally healthy least depressed, most unanxious, physically healthy people in your community. Even if I'm wrong about the social collapse, that's still a good ball game. Okay. That's still a smart thing to do. And, and the problem is, is that you can build a community like that very easily around a narrative that says that if you're not in a community like that, you're going to burn in hell forever. But how do you build a community like that around a set of secular values? How do you tell a narrative that convinces people that it's worth sacrificing for the people that they love and, and, and it kind of makes, makes sense of and codifies things like forgiveness and compassion and community service? Like all these values that, you know, you sort of, without religion, where do these, like that, you better figure out a way, a way of telling stories to your kids that convinces them that this is this healthier way of living. And you go like, wait, so the people in the communities that you're talking about, they would spend less time on Facebook. You're damn skippy they would because you would have that be kind of a, their community values would, would lead them to kind of critique and question the value of that kind of interaction. Like, absolutely. You want this community to survive. You want people to move forward. Like, you can't have all your people being alienated and FOMOing and being depressed and comparing themselves and having consumer values. You're going to have to change a lot of things. So Tony, if, if it was me, and I was trying to figure out how to make sense of the world. I would be trying to figure out like, what are the skills that people need to build those communities? And you go like, and, and, and Jillian, Jillian knows that what you need is you need somebody who's a good youth group leader. 
You need somebody who can go, hey, kids, want to play a game together? Hey, let's have a conversation and we'll talk about real stuff. Like all those old things I learned in evangelical Christian youth, youth ministry, it's all the same stuff I use now. Like when I was at USC, I ran this unbelievably wonderful group that was so cool that like the New York Times sent Mark Oppenheimer out to write like a huge profile in the New York Times magazine about it. And I was laughing the whole time because I'm like, Mark, this is just youth group. This is like as old as dirt. Like I have a potluck supper on Sunday. All the kids come. I put questions on the table that help them to have meaningful conversations with each other. Then I give a 10 minute inspirational talk and then we play a game. <laughs> it's youth group. <laughs> and he was like, is it youth group? And he, he was like, you know, but, but like the people at USC were like, we've never seen anything like this, you know, because in the secular world, they thought that they would be able to build up atheist communities or secular communities, whatever, like on the basis of like making fun of Christianity or on the basis of like, we're going to stand for truth and for science and reason. I'm like nobody's ever going to sacrifice anything except for love. So you got to build your community around a, a shared commitment to love. Now, can I make a data-based argument that living for love is actually the evolutionarily driven, most sensible way for people to, to maximize their potential on this earth? I can't. I got a lot of data. Got a lot of science. But the bottom line is, I, like, I got data to support it now, but that's not where I learned it. And so, I, Tony, what I would do if, if I was really concerned about the future of humanity in this dark age coming out of post-COVID is I would really try to teach people like listening skills. And, and I would want to teach them how to cook for 30 people and how to organize a dinner party so that nobody feels left out. And, and I, would, I, would, I would have a whole section where we would talk about like how you confront somebody when they've hurt your feelings using I statements. And then what are the, what are the five or six elements of a really good apology and then what does it really mean to forgive another person? You learn that stuff in, in the guise of Christianity. I did, but I don't believe in God anymore, but I still believe in forgiveness. So how are we going to tell stories about that? And you say, and then would you, I would want to come up with some really inspiring stories of forgiveness and maybe a song because people really remember songs. And then like we would tell that story and then like somebody would sing that song and then maybe we might all sing the chorus together. And you go like, oh my gosh. You sound like youth group. I go like, yeah, I also sound like a bunch of aborigines around a fire 5,000 years ago. Like, it, this stuff is as old as dirt. This is basic tribe building. Holy shit, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I had even more deconstructing to do in my brain. Look at that. Great fodder for the therapy talk this week. Jillian, a lot, a lot of us, when we, when we leave the faith, we got so burned and, and you didn't sound like you didn't get burned as bad as some people. People were so, they get snookered and they gave up large chunks of their lives and they were told that they were second-class citizens and they got shame issues and, and they were forced into marriages that they didn't want to be in and blah, blah, blah. So when they leave it, they're like, fuck all of this. They're like, I don't want any of it. You, you show me a charismatic guy who can give a 10-minute talk that I want to listen to and I, I will walk out of the room. You start singing a song and you can just stick that guitar up your nose. Like, like they want nothing to do with any. And what I always say to those people is like, look, you are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Christianity didn't last for all these thousands of years because its narrative is so sensible. Its narrative is batshit crazy. 
God was born in a, in a manger and then he lived to his 30 and then he died. And then like he rose three days later, we, you know, and then he flew away to heaven and like that, that's, it's absurd, right? No, but there's no evidence for that. It's not possible. It's defies the laws of physics. You're like, nobody's buying into Christianity because like, you know, I, it really makes sense to me. People buy into Christianity because of the music and because of the rituals and because of the gathering together and because of the youth groups. And so I'm like, don't throw out the music. Don't throw out the gathering together. Don't throw out the like inspiring talk. Throw out the batshit crazy narrative. That's the part that's problematic. So is that just to shift gears a little, because I'm just curious, like, so what you do now is basically you've taken, like you said, all those principles that are old as dirt for community and storytelling, and you have it implemented in a secular way. I'm trying. It's hard. It's easy to do on a college campus because on a college campus, everybody lives within a mile of each other and they all eat their meals together. If you know how to, and everybody's lonely and trying to figure out their identity and reading books all day. So if a smart guy like me shows up and says, Hey, look, want to read this book? Let's talk about this. And then you're like, Hey, you're an adult and you care about me. And gosh, none of my professors want to talk to me. And so, you know, it was easy to build a community on a college campus. Like I came back to Cincinnati and you try to do it in the real world with families and stuff and people are really busy. And then COVID hits and you know, COVID just, blew apart so much of what we we're trying to do. And the problem is you, you go like, well, now you don't have mask mandates and now you can get together and stuff like that. I go like, I know. And I'm like, but people's spirits are broken. My spirit's broken. Like I have a much harder time generating the energy that I had to walk into a room of 30 people and pour out energy on them, especially when some of them are very socially awkward and it takes a lot of work to be with them. And part of me is just like, I look at my wife and go, hey, why don't we just stay home? Like, you know, we're cool. And and we were never like that. You know, I want to believe that I'm going to recover from COVID. You know, if you put me one-on-one, like I'm a therapist in like in my real life, like how I make, because nobody pays you to be a humanist minister. So I went back to school and became a therapist. And I'm like, I can still do it one-on-one. Like you put a person in front of me and I will love that person like crazy for an hour. Like that's easy for me. Like I'm an extrovert. I really care. It used to be that if you if you showed me a room full of 30 people, I would be the glue that would pull that room together. And I do not have the same moxie as I had before. Maybe that's just because I got old. You know, you know, sometimes like you're working out, but like if you stop, you can't get started again. And like, maybe I just like, I stiffened up during COVID, but, but I was getting old. Anyway. I don't know. But like, all I know is it's really hard to do now. It's hard to get people to leave their houses and come out and actually be together. So you know, everyone's like, well, we have virtual communities and stuff like that. And I go like, yeah, you know, virtual community when your husband's dying of cancer, it's of limited utility. Like you need somebody to show up. You need somebody to sit with you. It's ironic in a way, because like we need community more than ever right now, but we've all put a wall up between us and that, you know, and I think part of it's, you know, safety, literal, like personal safety with things. And now, like you said, like masks and vaccines and there's, there's, um, ways to do it, but we all, we're all kind of like, well, let's see, you know, like now what's going to happen. The truth is, Jillian, a lot of us were anemic before. So like I would have these college kids come to USC and I mean, these were brilliant kids. They were, they were getting six figure jobs coming out of school. They're gorgeous and attractive, talented. They could write a paper. They were like excellent sheep in the sense of like, they could jump over any fence, do any hoop, follow any assignment, but they had no idea where they were going or why they were there. 
And I would take these beautiful kids and I would put them in a room together and they would not know how to have a good conversation. And so then I would teach them. I'd be like, okay, so here's how you make eye contact. And when somebody's talking, like you nod your head, like you're doing right now, Jillian. You nod your head to let them know that I you're still myself. with them. I caught myself. like, oh. <laughs> and, there's like, and, so, and, and if they're saying something that's really hard, sometimes you just reach your hand across and you just touch their arm. If you can touch them just a little bit, not creepy, but just touch them a little bit, it's going to change the, the nature of the thing. And they would come back and they would go like, oh my gosh, I use this, that stuff. It works like crazy. I'd be like, yeah, did nobody ever teach you how to ask a good question, how to show up? Like most of these kids, they're all on Tinder. So they had like had sex with 15 people they barely knew. But I would say, how many of you have ever written a love letter? None of them. None of them had ever held hands. So they'd had sex with lots of people, but they had never, they hadn't learned those simple skills of connection that you're supposed to learn in fact. And their parents were both working all the time. So like they didn't sit around the table and have meaningful table conversation. Sometimes when they were around the table, they were all on their devices. And so like, you know, you say, look, what are the skills of community building? Well, some of those basic skills are just conversation, like listening skills, repeating. Somebody says something, you go like, so what I hear you saying is that you're really upset about that. And they would go like, why would you say that? And I go, it's funny how it would try it out. And, and so I spent a lot of time teaching friendship 101 to kids who were the best and brightest that this country has to offer. And, and they could learn it, but they weren't learning it in a classroom and they hadn't learned it on the soccer field. Because of course, in the old days, you go to the playground, you had to work out all that shit between you and your friends at the playground. But now everybody goes to soccer practice and there's an adult who has a schedule and he tells you to stand in this line and do this and then you'll be on the travel team. And the kids don't learn the self-organizing skills that you're supposed to learn when you're a little kid playing because all of their play is sponsored and overseen and watched. And so like deep, like this, this inability, so, so like when COVID hits and then you say, go back to it, you go like, well, it's harder than it used to be. And go, well, that's okay because you guys have really robust skills. And they go like, ah, actually, we don't have any skills at all. I want to reflect. So, because I'm seeing this thread come through and I'm kind of remembering, I don't know if y'all remember this, but at the very end of the movie, Wall-E, the Pixar film, when the humans come back to Earth on their you know space cruise ship, the animated sequence during the credits is like the robots and the humans learning how to repopulate the earth and like they learn how to farm again and they learn how to like they're remembering what they used to know and forgot and now they're kind of relearning again and what you're describing is you know like we we touched on some pretty dark territory there for a good chunk of the middle of this conversation but when we talk about you know how are we laying the groundwork for better future we're talking about Really, really basic fundamental things, not taking for granted that people know how to communicate, how to be intimate, how to hold hands, that there are some basic, basic fundamental things that it might just be as simple as, not as simple as that, but in terms of what we want to focus on, that it's it's going back to the basic, basic basics. Yeah, Tony, Tony, there's this wonderful woman. I, I'm trying to remember her name. She wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversation. And she's an MIT technologist. And 
15 years ago, she gave a talk in which she talked about how all this new AI technology was going to create all kinds of wonderful relationships for people. And 10 years later, she came back and she gave another TED talk and she was like, I was completely wrong. Technology is a nightmare. And she wrote this book about how technology is eroding our ability to connect with each other. And the last chapter of the book, last, last few chapters of the book, she said, here's the good news. The good news is, is this stuff is so hardwired into us biologically, like it's deep in our DNA. She's like that when people try to relearn those skills, like you're talking about, instant success, like amazing things happen. If you've ever known anybody who's done a digital fast for a weekend, it doesn't take them like six months to see an impact, to see their mood brighten, to see their, like they instantaneously have these experiences. And so like, that's why this stuff, I am hopeful is is because I've seen people who decided that they needed to change and who who made those changes and their their recovery time, the strength that they gained back was very fast. Now, I'm not saying they became world class in a week, but what I'm saying is like when it's like when you're losing weight, like the first five pounds come off real easy. And like the early gains in this stuff are really you're, you're not you're not swimming upstream anymore. Right, like you're coming back into alignment with your nature. Like we have it in us, even if we were never taught it, we have it in us to connect, to communicate, to sing, to commune, to have those transcendent moments. Like you've got mirror neurons that like when when you make somebody else happy, a bunch of endorphins are going to drop in you and you're not going to know where they came from, but they're that like your body is hardwired for connection. This is a big part about why I am so passionate about this because we have a lot of people who are building communities right now who if if we can appreciate the simple but deeply impactful ways that as community leaders we can be creating the circumstances that lead to these meaningful moments for people. You know, hopefully transcendent moments if we're lucky, but even just those little flashes of like, oh, wow, this is what it's like to hold someone's hand and actually feel a real connect. Or this is, this is what it means to forgive some, like something like that. It's not complicated once you kind of understand how to approach it. And, and then people's lives are changed through very, very simple prompts. And I, I feel like that's something that's available to us as community organizers. It isn't complicated. It is difficult. Okay. <laughs> well put. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> there are some things that are really easy, like, you know, calling my mother. Like, it's easy on the cell phone. It's, but it's incredibly complicated, the process by which I talk to my mom. Uh, yeah. Befriending another person is very, very, is very simple and it's very difficult. If you've ever had a close friendship, you know that there are times when you suffer and there are times when you have to work and there are times when your whole weekend gets ruined because your friend needs you to do something and because they're your friend, you have to do it. Relationships are, are difficult and in a culture that prizes ease and convenience and user friendliness, that's sometimes the hard sell about relationships is I can get you connection. And you go, yeah, but can you get me connection without any obligation? Oh, I, I can't do that. Can you, can, can you get me co collect connection without any pain? And I'm like, you haven't listened to enough country music. You would know better. No, there's no such thing. Every rose has its thorn. And, and so this is what you need. 
And this is what will cause you to thrive. And in the end of your life, like your best stories would be rooted in some of the most biggest struggles in those relationships. But like nobody has kids because it'll make them happy. Every study, every scientific study would tell you that having children will reduce your level of moment to moment happiness for the, not for a few weeks, for the next 25 or 30 years. <laughs> You're like, then why do people do it? You're like, oh, because it'll really raise your sense of meaning and connection. And it turns out that human beings they want to be happy, but they also want to feel meaningful and they want to feel connected and they want to have a sense of, of agency. And so like, so what I'm saying is like the relationships and the communities that we're talking about, they can be amazingly significant in people's lives, but they are not without cost. I can get you to be better at connecting real fast. Okay. And so you're like, oh, great. This will be easy to sell. The problem is... Once you're connected to somebody, then they might need something. And if you care about them, you'll feel like you want to do something about that. What I'm hoping is that there is enough of a need, uh, enough of a, a hunger right now for something meaningful that if you give people the right circumstances, they get a taste of that oh my God, like this could be awesome. This is like, I'm feeling something. I'm feeling connection. Then maybe you can open the door to, hey, if you want to keep going with this, it's going to require a little bit of commitment. But if, you, if you're willing to, then you can keep this feeling and you can go deeper with it. So I'm, I'm hoping that's kind of the direction we can go for sure. No, and that's a really hopeful. Th the other hopeful thought, Tony, is that it may be like the, the one time when people do always see the need and pay the price is in the midst of crisis. Like in a war, little communities, people band together. In a natural disaster, guards come down. Like you may not be old enough to remember 9-11 as an oh, adult. Bless, but like, bless you. <laughs> but, all right, bless, all right, good. So you know. Unfortunately. There's a thing that happens. There's a thing that always happens in wars and in disasters and in crises. And you go like, well, are you saying that that maybe if we don't figure it out the easy way, we'll definitely figure it out the hard way. And they're like, yeah, like, I don't know if everybody will figure it out. Some people will die for the lack of it. But yeah, the people that will survive, they'll be the ones that are connected. They'll be the ones that, that know how to make those connections. And so it, it, like, I don't think our society is going to make it. I don't think our infrastructure is sustainable. But do I think like the species it's a pretty adaptable species. I think there's a good chance. You know, we've. I, I like to think of us as kind of the B student where like we wait till the last minute to cram for the test. But, you know, it's like we're pretty scrappy and like we, you know, we might have to guess a few, but, we, you know, we, we get we get it together in time to get the assignment in. Bar, okay, I'm listen, so wait, excited. Wait, wait. Wait, I have one thing. One yes. Thing. I know okay. we got to go. Okay. I yeah. got to go. I got to go. I like you guys. So I'm going to give you the one thing I've learned about community building. The secret to community. It's the one thing I've learned that is the most valuable and it's the least intuitive. You would think that people that highly value community and that start a community in order to build a community for themselves because they value community would build the best communities. And the answer is they don't. People that build communities because they want to be a part of a community, those communities never last. Because in the end, there's conflict and there's difficulty. And the very reasons that people are like, I wanted to be with people that I agree with, that I connect with, that I feel comfortable with, and discomfort happens. And then they're like, this isn't worth the trouble and they leave. The communities that cohere 
are communities that are formed around an external mission. So for instance, the high school football team. If you said to all the black kids and the white kids, hey, we just wanna, we're just gonna get together and become friends, never happened. But if you talk to anybody who's played at a high level of, of football, they go like, yeah, black kids and white kids, there's always a lot of connections. Pro football teams, you see hugging, kissing, hey, my best friends. But it's because they got together and they don't get together for the sake of becoming friends. They get together for the sake of winning games. And then when there's conflict and difficulty on the team, they go like, man, you got to figure out how to work it out with Charlie because he's an awesome linebacker and we can't afford to lose him. We're committed to this thing. Yeah. We're committed to this thing. And so like, all right, you and I are going to, we're going to hash it out. That's that Denzel Washington movie, Remember the Titans. It's when they figure out like, listen, you work this out or we're not going to win a game. And then people are like, all right. So nobody works things out in a community for the sake of the community. They work things out for the sake of the mission. So if you want to build a solid community, you build it around putting on a show. You're like, oh, if that were true, all the drama kids would be really close like they are. Or winning a marching band competition. You go, like, ooh, that'll work too. Or saving the world from damnation. That worked for my community. You go, like, well, what, what would a secular community build itself around? And you go, like, well, one thing it could do is it could look out into the world the way you do, Tony, with your eyes full of love and compassion. And it could say, there are a lot of lost and lonely people out there. Let's build a team that can go and rescue lost and lonely people. And, and, and that can create meaning in their lives. Let's be evangelical about this. Let's have our mission be not to try to talk people out of their communities or out of their missions. Let's just go look for people that don't have anything and try to suck them into ours. And you go like, wait a second. Then what would happen would be somebody would be a great singer. They can inspire people with their voice. And they would be a just a difficult person. And you go like, yeah, but you know what? When she sings those songs, it really makes the meeting come alive. So we got to figure out a way to work it out with her. And, and communities that cohere are communities that share not only common values, they share a common purpose. And, and so that, so like it could be to save the world from carbon usage, or it could be about like rescuing the whales, or it could be around helping lonely people or mothers against drunk driving. I don't care what it is, but there's got to be something where your community exists to benefit people outside of your community. That's my one big secret word. It's like the mic drop. That's my mic drop. I'm out of here. Boom. But, but, Before but please you don't go. drop the mic. Yeah, we don't. do still have to do rapid fire. And I can't wait for your responses. So the way this is going to work, Jillian is going to pepper you with questions. You're going to give her answers that are one sentence or less. And we're just going to go whatever pops into your head. Just Do you not know me at all by now? Oh, I no, I I do. I do. I know I, I feel like I know you pretty well already, <laughs> which is great. Get ready for rapid fire time. Jillian, I'm turning the mic over to you. All right. Bart, what did you want to be when you grew up? A race car driver. How do you define community? Oh, stop. I just did. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. That's fair. Bart, what's something on your bucket list that you have done? I skydove. That, that'll do it. Yeah. And what is something still on your bucket list that you want to do in your life? Oh, man, that's the honest answer. And then that's the one I should give you. Uh, <laughs> no, nope. honest answers. Uh, the other thing that was on my bucket list, uh, the thing I should tell you is like, I really spent 10 years wanting to use psychedelic drugs. And then I did. And they totally changed my life. 
in a really in positive a good way. way. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I, that'd be a whole other. Podcast. And then I regretted it. <laughs> no, no, it's amazing. Okay, so the thing that's still on my bucket list. Gosh, I wanna, I wanna have my own office where like I can hang things on the wall and it stays the same way because I'm the only one that uses. I just once in my life I want to have my own office. That is be- That's beautiful. I like that. Um, what's a book that you just love or would love to recommend to other people to read? Based on this conversation, like flowing out of this conversation, I would say that a book that I think would be just to really important for people would be really helpful was a book called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. Johan Hari. Nice. Yeah, who yeah. I had on my podcast. A, a I know, of months I saw ago. that. I'm going to go. He's real. Okay. He's so beautiful. I mean, we, we do, all have homework. Yeah, yeah. we, we uh, all have homework to go find that episode. Yeah, but that's that's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's a really good book, and it would and it would cover a lot of the ground in a, in a much better way than I did. Bart, if you could live anywhere else in the world, where would it be? New Zealand. Same. Um, and finally, best place I've ever been. <laughs> I've never been. I just know I want to move there. <laughs> Finally, how do you want to be remembered? As a world-class people lover. Well. That's what I'm working on. Perfect. Excellent. Bart, how do we find you on the internet for the listeners tuning in? The only thing I do that's of any significance to anybody is this podcast called Humanize Me. I mean, anybody outside of my circle, you know, is, is this podcast called Humanize Me. And it's a lovely conversation. And so it's on all the platforms you know, it's just humanize me. If you want, if, if somebody wanted to find me, uh, and sometimes people want to find me when they have been battered by religion and they're trying to figure out how to find their way out and I coach them. If anybody wanted to find me, you would find me at bartcampolo.org. Amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm easy to find. And, and if you hit the contact thing and you send it, like it comes right to me, there's no filter. And I will take a while, but I will always write you back. So, you know, so if, if there's anything I've said here that's, it startled somebody or, or, or been helpful to somebody and they're just like, just one more thing. Just feel free to reach out. I'm, I, I love, I love, I love to hear from people. Bart, thank you so much. It's been what an incredible uh, experience. I got a lot to reflect on after this and uh, so appreciate your time, man. Oh man, it's the CX experience, right? Yeah. That's it. It was the CX experience. Thank you both so much for being so patient and kind to me. So there was our conversation with Bar Campolo. Jillian, I got to say, I'm really, I'm vibing on the whole transcendent experience confirming the given narrative thing. Makes me think of like when I go see a live band and if I have like a really good moment while I'm listening to that band, I'm a fan of that band for life, even if they're not actually that good. You know, have you ever, you know what I mean? You just, yeah, the moment. You have the magic moment. And that's like the best part of life, having those moments. But I think of like as a community builder, is it possible for me to create the circumstances where it's at least there's a chance that somebody's going to have a really special moment? I feel like that's a really good kind of thought prompt for, for me as an organizer. So you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, I agree. It's a great way to look at things as a community builder, what you're saying exactly. Like, could I create this experience for someone? That is a great way to think about community programming and, you know, just gathering people, whether it's a dinner party at your house or talking to someone at the bookstore. One of my favorite examples, because I love my local bookstore. 
it's a, it's a really interesting personal challenge. Yeah. And I, I agree. And I think getting to the fundamentals as well, recognizing how simple, like the simplicity of the activities that can generate really meaningful connection, especially in this time. Like my friend asked me if I wanted to just like hang out and have dinner and watch a movie. And I was like, oh my God, yes, that sounds so good. And it's like, yeah, it's like we're so, we're so starved for, you know, just hanging out. But like b- teaching fundamentals. It's interesting to me. I think this is the third guest where we've talked about how we don't know how to make friends. Yeah, at least the third. Yeah. Yeah. Like we as a society and I think technology, good and bad, we have lost our way in human interaction in that meaningful way. Because now it is just so easy to keep it shallow, for lack of a better word. And it's just, oh, I'm friends with this person. And I so I follow their Instagram, you know, so I feel connected to them, but I'm not going to call them. I might not even have their phone number, but I went to college with them and they're in Bali right now, living their best life. And I feel like a loser because I'm not, or, or just like, oh, they're so pretty or just, oh, they had a third baby. How exciting for them. I feel connected to this. I said, congrats. I'll never meet that child. Right. And so just kind of taking a step back and being understanding like acquaintance versus like friend versus like legitimate actual talk on the phone, meet in person friend. Like I think it's it's getting very blurry. And it makes me sad to think about kids my daughter's age that have have grown up with social media in existence. Like what is their college experience going to look like? It's probably going to look like what Bart was just talking about where people don't know how to make eye contact. And that's just really sad. Which, you know, leads me to think it, it just comes back to let's exemplify that as best as we can. Like, let's practice that, you know, let's practice being more vulnerable, being more available, being willing to commit to showing up to something and, get, you know, going through hard times with people as well to, to, to forge those bonds. Although it does, it does bring up the question, cool, how, you know? And I think like your point, invite a friend over for a movie and dinner. Like that's so simple. It's not that, hard, but we just have gotten, and, and with the pandemic too, like Bart was saying, we've all gotten kind of just like, mm, I'm good. I'm in pajama well, pants. You, like, <laughs> you don't want to like impose your life on somebody else, but, but, you know, practice being vulnerable, you know, tell people the truth about what's going on for you. There's a good chance that other people are feeling the same thing you are and, or, or they can at least appreciate talking through a difficult situation. Yeah. Call somebody. Modeling vulnerability creates the space for the other person to open up to. And that's that's when I think there is a lot of opportunity. That is the perfect endpoint. You can't beat that. Y'all, appreciate you Y'all. coming along for this crazy ride with us, with Bart Campolo, Tony, Jillian, signing off till next time. We are Team SPI on Twitter. Indeed we are. Let us know what you think of the episode and we will catch you next time. We will see you next Tuesday. This has been the Community Experience. For more information on this episode, including links and show notes, head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash listen. So if you want to learn more about Bart and his podcast, go ahead and look up the Humanize Me podcast on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you want to learn more about Bart himself, it's Bart, B-A-R-T, 
Campolo, C-A-M-P-O-L-O.org. Our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Our series producers are David Grabowski and senior producer Sarah Jane Hess. Editing and sound design by Duncan Brown. Music by David Grabowski. See you next time.